got tremendous moxie for his size. Tell me about it. He's a fighter. You are listening to Pada Bing, a podcast that breaks down every episode of The Sopranos one at a time. It is Christmas Eve, and we are in studio. It is me and John and a very special returning fresh from a flight from Louisville. Louisville, Kentucky. You had a connection, you said? Where'd you have to stop? Connection in Vegas. Connection in Vegas to Los Angeles, straight to the studio. Dr. Justin. How's it going? Dr. (laughs) Justin. Guys, it is so good to be back in our little booth. I love it. It's really nice. So Naya is uh, home with family in Boston, and uh, she regrettably couldn't be here. This is an episode she was really looking forward to. But as we all know, the show must go on. But it really is special to have you back in the seat. And uh, this is how it all started. I'm so happy that that I could make it here. I've been looking forward to this. So today we're talking about episode 12, season 2, The Night in White satin armor the air date was april 2nd 2000 it was written by robin green and mitchell burgess directed by alan coulter who was nominated for an emmy for his work on this episode hbo synopsis engaged lovebirds richie and janice have an explosive first quarrel meanwhile Irina takes drastic measures to try to convince tony to continue their affair title the Knight in White Satin Armor. Malaprop? Yes. Of the metaphor, Knight in Shining Armor. And then also a song by the Moody Blues. Nobody does malaprobisms like The Sopranos. Nobody. Or like Irina. And then there's the Janice component to this, right? First, she's being fitted in a white satin-esque dress for her wedding. And second, she's Tony's unintended hero in this episode, right? Because as we're going to discuss ad nauseum, to quote Steely Dan, she takes care of his... Dirty work. Did you I like that one? Did I don't want to do your dirty work. Oh, no. I, didn't, I didn't know that was... No, I... Okay, before we dive in, this episode... By the way, since Justin is here, I don't give a fuck. I'm going NBA <laughs> all out today. It's a gonna, full court press, It's going to be will. a full court press. So, before we dive in... We're going to trap John. We're going to trap John. So, before we dive in, this episode has one major exit but several new introductions, which I thought there was a nice symmetry to that. So we meet Jackie Jr., Albert Berezi, and Svetlana Kirilenko, of no relation to Andre Kirilenko or AK-47, <laughs> the retired Russian who ran roughshod over the NBA for the better part of 13 seasons. Opening sequence. The music. I just felt like it was really whimsical and silly. Yeah. And... Putting that against the fight that Tony's having with Janice, I think that's done pretty often in the show. Whenever there's a a pretty intense fight that Tony has with anyone in his immediate family, namely uh, Janice and Livia, there's always an element of humor that's interjected into something that's really intense, whether it's this scene where they're yelling and there's ballroom dancing going on in the background, or... Tony basically telling his mom that the children didn't have a chance to live happy lives because she's so miserable and then he just trips and falls down and it becomes kind of a a funny thing that's going on. All the way back to even when when Johnny Boy has has a tiff in a, I wouldn't say a flashback, but there's a gun involved with a bop hairdo. Yeah, and you mentioned the the fall. I have a thing about that I'm going to talk about at the end. The song is Paris Sweet from the Forget Paris soundtrack with Billy Crystal, which, again, is a built-in basketball reference. That's a movie where Billy Crystal is an NBA referee. Yeah, NBA ref. I love that movie. That's a good movie. The dancing for me was this foreshadowing for the choreographed ballet that would take place in terms of acting, motion, and framing that would take place after Richie gets shot, which is something that I really want to, like, push on you guys in a few minutes any thoughts and reactions to the choice to start this episode this way well i think it's kind of a bookend where we're we're starting it off in janice and richie's new house with richie's we're not sure if he's gay or not but he's obviously a great source of shame for richie so it's kind of starting out there and that's that's how it ends right with with little ricky being brought up 
I don't know about you guys, but whenever I watch the series again, this episode, the beginning of it, always kind of is almost like a, it's like a breath of fresh air. We know what's going to happen, but it's just, it, it would otherwise feel like a fast forwardable moment in the show, but it actually is like a nice, great little bridge, if you will. I so, had uh, read Alan Coulter said that he instructed Gandolfini to come and ask first. Yeah. In order to give the entrance a humorous impact. To break up the beauty to break and up whimsicalness. The, the whimsical that you're yeah. talking about, just back to Tony. So the real reference that Tony makes was a was likening Rick to Fred Astaire. Observation that I had when I saw Rick, who we discover is Richie's son because they just mention it, Richie's son can dance with his feet like Richie can dance with his hands. And then we're introduced to a new character in this scene, again, where a lot of stuff is going to happen in this episode that changes it. And for me, it's really a quite emotional show. Some people are going to listen to this and say, why aren't we talking about what happened to Richie first? But I'm choosing to go chronological for a very specific yeah. reason. So Jackie Jr. is in the mix. And I read this someplace that this was his first day on set, uh, Jason Serbone, the actor, mm. and he was actually really nervous. And when he's talking to Tony, you see that tension. That was actually real. That was actually because he didn't want, he, like, he was like new to the show and he didn't know where his place was going to be going forward. So that wasn't actual, act, it was a combination of acting and like, oh shit, I'm on The Sopranos, which I thought was kind of cool. That's crazy. Yeah. So Jason Serbone, interesting fact, another NBA reference. Jason was in a Suzanne Vega music video for a song titled Luca. Huh. And you know what I'm talking about when I say Luca, I right? Do, of course. By the way, have you been watching his games? He's uh, unbelievable. Crazy, right? Unbelievable. Okay. Wastrel friends. Tony says, go back to your wastrel friends. Did you guys catch that reference? Yeah, I thought he was saying wasteful. And no, it wasn't until your notes that I went back and really listened to it. And yeah, it so it's wastrel. It's wastrel, and that basically means like good for nothing. That's basically ah. what he was saying. But none of his friends caught it because it's a big word. Those guys were housing Foster's cans. They look like 32 ounces. Foster's, Australian for beer. So we learned that Tony won't let AJ hang out with Richie. Any thoughts or reactions to that? Do any of us really think that he would have done anything negative? Or do you think that Tony was just trying to remove a potential bad influence? Someone that AJ could potentially look up to and, and well, he shape has his this, mind? this continued view of like the next generation not being a part of what they are. He seems to be really adamant about making sure that Meadow and AJ don't live the life that he does. And he even alludes to being concerned about Jackie yeah. Jr. Yeah. Even though it's not his blood, yeah. he's just, Richie's a bad influence and he doesn't want to get AJ involved in any of that. Yeah, he even says, I don't want, I think he's referring to AJ, I don't want him to end up like another Christopher. You guys don't think some of it is him just really trying to stick it to Janice? That's, I was thinking more of he wants to stick it to Richie. He's just, Richie is a thorn in his side. He's someone who's constantly on his ass. He's got to ride he's back in town. Yeah now, yeah, now you know what? Let me give it back to him and let me... Let me give him shit. Because he's constantly doing that throughout this episode. Like that meeting with uh, Albert and Jackie Jr. He's just high-handing Richie. Even even Jr. says that. Great line. Tony says to Janice, Be in denial. Be a codependent to a fucking shitbag. What the fuck do I care? You know, you just can't stand to see me happy, can you? You motherfucker. Take this shit to you. Shut up your ass. You go from... Love to hate to love to hate. Very bipolar. The bipolar side of Tony Soprano. The question that I have that I keep wondering, and you kind of see this at the very end when they're at the bus station, but why doesn't he want her to be happy? Are you saying that he doesn't want her to be happy or are you asking? I'm asking, like, I feel like he's really, like, it's his sister and she seems happy, but he won't be happy for her. And she alludes yeah. to it. She says, my house is going to be bigger than his house, whatever. But what do you, do you guys have any thoughts on what's going on there? You guys have siblings. I don't have siblings. So I mean, I don't know. I just don't, I just want to understand, like, why genuinely wouldn't he want her to just be happy? Well, I think that the, the, a normal sibling relationship always has a little bit of sense of rivalry in it. Um, I, this, this was a really tough question. Does Tony want Janice to be happy? I think from the beginning of Janice's entrance into the show, she's just a huge pain in his ass. So he's rightfully cautious of her motives because she always has a hidden, somewhat evil agenda. So when you're constantly annoyed and frustrated with a person, it's probably a little difficult to root for their happiness. And with Janice especially, happiness for her usually comes at a cost to Tony. Yeah. Um, and going back to the sibling rivalry, we, we see in that... Um, a flashback where Tony is really jealous of her going with Johnny boy to the carnival. 
So we know that there's some jealousy there. But I, I think that he does want her to be happy. Part of it is just, I want her to be happy on my terms. So maybe it is a little bit of jealousy. I don't want her to have the bigger house. I want her to be happy, but I want her to be happy kind of underneath me. So it's, it's a really tough, nuanced answer to this question. He is the way he is because of his upbringing. He's depressed. He's not happy. And I think he resents Janice when he sees that she was cut from the same cloth and now has made a life out of that. And when he... She just walks into that life. Yeah. Whereas he's been building his way up into it. Yeah. Who isn't a thorn in his side? You said an interesting thought and made me think, Justin, like... Uh, she's a thorn in his side, but is there anybody that he is kind of like he can coexist with peacefully without any like abrasion? Silvio. 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 Okay. Silvio knows how to play him like a Stradivarius. Artie well, and him have a similar relationship. But Artie pisses him off. Mm-hmm. Artie drives him crazy. Silvio. It's a good answer. And Meadow, but Meadow, him and Meadow have vicissitudes. They go up and down too. Okay. Uh, fun line. Take that settee and shove it up your ass. It's just sort of like a very good way to end the scene. Starts with his ass, and it ends with him saying ass. Mm-hmm. Um, Irina. Tony wants to take her from the perfume counter to the modeling runway. The Netflix spinoff series that I came up with in this sequence was The Pony Boot Adventures. <laughs> okay? I like the spinoff tomato soup for your ass. That would be a better spinoff. <laughs> well, so, so, so Chicken Soup for the Soul is what you're alluding to. That's a book that Arena's reading, uh, which is a, I think there's like, like 48 of them now, but it's basically inspirational stories about ordinary people, which I thought was interesting that Arena was the one reading that. Today, the company is now a well-oiled conglomerate. They have books, they have TV, they have radio, they have, like, media. Um, it and seems just, like a perfect podcast. They're pumping chicken yeah. soup into everybody at a fast clip. So, observation. I started to mention this to you just a minute ago. Tony started cool with Janice and then flipped 180. Likewise, he started out cool with the arena, and then in a matter of seconds, he completely flips the script. He's highly irritable this episode. And my question is, any thoughts on what's going on with him before we know what is going to take so place? So he says one line that I think perfectly captures where he's at. And he says to Irina, you don't know what the fuck you want. And in that moment, I'm like, Tony, you don't know what you want. Do you want to be with her? Do you want her to be with this runway limos guy? Do you want her to just disappear? Do you want to help her get a new job? What is it that you're looking to do with her? Are you just looking for closure? I think that he's he's a little confused and he's projecting a little bit onto her. Mm. I miss Dr. Justin. <laughs> uh, another thing you just said, runway limos, that's a reference to her being also on the runway as a model. Mm. A little wordplay there. Well, and perfume counter and later Carmela smells her perfume. Oh, oh, nice. Boom, boom. Stitching it up. Dimes, mm-hmm. dimes, dimes. Okay. <laughs> We're on a 10-0 run here. The Richie Tony garbage root divvy. That's a great scene. It's in the rain. It's very simple. It's very elegant. The classic line of the show, if you were to like take a list of the lines from Tony that you could like use in your everyday life. So one of the other things that we started, Justin, is like, is there a line from the show that you use in everyday life? Tony says, those who want respect, give respect. Classic yeah, piece of beauty in the timing of delivering it and where it came was so great. Could have been said in a different episode at a different time and it wouldn't have been as resonant, but right here it was so perfectly resonant. Is he sticking it to Rich- Richie extra hard because of Janice or is this strictly business? I think it's a two for one. Yeah. Buttoned up together. He's a business guy and we've always said how professional he is and it's a bad deal to run Coke through the garbage routes and he's really firm about it. Richie disrespected him by continuing, and he even got away with subtly well, threatening his life, and Richie just scoffed it off, too. It was hilarious. It's a double-double. So we cut to a scene with Junior where he's talking to his lawyer, and he says, I'm hemorrhaging spondulix over here, <laughs> which is a fancy word for cash. I naively thought it was some medical condition. The lawyer's ballpark. All I got to say is 400K to review audio tape. That's even a lot by today's standards. So is that a lot? That's a lot of cash, man, for people to just listen to audio. 
Vic, Vic is thinking to himself, "Fuck this podcast." <laughs> I'm going. I'm going back in the you other could business. You be an audio specialist. Oh That's my true. god! I forget forensic audio decryptor. Anyway, I just thought that number that that was not well, in the it's ballpark. 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 Yeah. Ballpark. Wrigley Field yeah. ballpark. Um, Junior and Richie. It beautifully set up the way we know what's going. There's going to be a showdown with Janice and Richie at the end. But this whole episode leading up to the final sequence is essentially Richie trying to kill Tony, finish what Junior tried to do in season one and failed at. Do you remember off the top of your head if Isabella was episode twelve of season one? I can look it up. Can you look it up real quick? Yeah. Because if it is, that's beautiful symmetry. What episode I number think it's was 11. it? Eleven. 11? Episode 12. Oh, episode 12. 12. Boom. Boom. Do you see that now? And this yeah. just came up on, there's no notes on this. This just came to me. Season one, episode 12, you have the hit on Tony. And season two, episode 12, you have the rekindling to put a hit out on Tony. And the wheels are set in motion. Junior gives the okay. Junior tells Richie to go talk to Albert Barese about whacking Tony. But he says, watch out. He's a slippery fuck. Do you guys have any context for that? The only thing that I got is that it has to do with the fact that he repeats himself. I thought he's it like was... A, like uh, a yes man. He's easily swishable. Like, he's not loyal to one particular thing. And I think he wanted Richie to come in indirectly and not outright say, hey, we want to put a hit on Tony in fear that Albert would turn around and essentially do what Junior did. But that's why it was very insinuated when he talked to him. But we've never met Albert Brazy before, right? This is the first time we've met him. So we don't know any backstory about him being a slippery fuck, but we do know that he repeats himself. Yeah. And we do know that he's kind of a yes man. So what does it say to you that he was loyal to Richie? Other than he can't, Richie can't close. Is he a yes man or is he dumb like a fox? He wasn't loyal to Richie though. No, no, that's what I'm saying. He was loyal to Tony. Yeah. Yeah, he was loyal. What does it say to you about Albert that he's just... He's like status quo guy. Do you guys think that Albert goes and tells Tony what happened? Yeah, that's the possibility. Well, he if doesn't. He outright says it. Bobby, this is an interesting thing that I'm going to come back to. Bobby says at the end of that sequence, he's got tremendous moxie for his size. And all I'm thinking at that point is, tell me about it, right? I mean, Richie just, again, you, you, you haven't been with us for some of the episodes of season two, but I have literally fallen in love with David Praval a.k.a. Richie. I've been listening. Yeah, and he does have moxie. I think that's what it is. The word moxie is what makes me so excited when I watch him. He doesn't give a fuck. He gives, he is in the if in the modern era, if this show was out in 2017, 2018, he would be the poster boy for the hashtag zero fucks given. No, he gives fucks. He gives fucks. He definitely does. Richie? Richie cares about how his son looks. He cares about um, what's traditional and old okay, school. Okay. I yeah, think I yeah. think he's he okay. is. So we go from Junior Richie to Skip and Pussy. And the, the point I want to make here at the outset, they have a couple of interactions in this episode. Uh, just Skip's reaction, this whole idea of like Scottsdale and this whole idea of like assignment, it's starting to become, there's this little sea change that's happening where Pussy thinks he's like part of the team now. And it's like in pickup basketball where you're like the last guy who gets picked up and you're basically just a body on a court. That's kind of like what pussy is, but he thinks he deserves to take a couple of shots. Like, give me the ball. I'm wide open kind of thing. And it was a nice little way to set that up. Well, something really, really interesting happens in that scene. Yeah. And I I don't know why this kind of wasn't a bigger deal on the show, but he specifically says to Skip, pussy does, he says, you look the other way on that bevel aqua beef. Right. And then he says, we would never do that. And then Pussy basically admits it. All right, what else can you say at this point? And he basically admits. He admits it. And Skip is pretty okay with it. He doesn't blow up. He's kind of confessing to a murder and there's absolutely no consequences. Do you think he, he doesn't care or he's, he's trying to have plausible deniability or chooses not to hear it. So there's a, there's the friendship component they have now, right? Mm-hmm. They've become friends, but also there's this thing, this whole Warren Buffett idea, like when you're hunting for elephants, don't get distracted by mm. rabbits. And he wants Tony Soprano. He doesn't want to like do a thing with Big Puss right now. Or but he'd be implicated, he might even be implicated if he knows skip, about this. Yeah, an accomplice yeah, after the fact exactly. or something. Yeah, that was my nit- one of my nitpicks. Is like, wh- he just admitted to murder, basically. Like, why is no one saying anything about well, that? Later on, he gets him 
cleared of a hit and run on yeah, they're really, like, putting somebody in a coma. That was a little rushed, but I guess in the context of what happened in this episode, it's why it's okay, but um, good catching those two things. The airline ticket from the Scatino bust out, that is the big revelation here, the big piece of juice that Pussy gives to Skip. And my question for you guys, is this the first real thing that he's given to the feds so far? I think this is the first big piece of the puzzle that... Well, th- Skip this. dismisses this thing, too. Remember, he sees the ticket, he's like, what do I care Why about? Why is he not that? interested? Because he, well, he, he figures Tony's smart enough not to use it himself, and it seemed like low-hanging fruit. It seemed like the rabbit when they're yeah. going for the elephant, as yeah. you mentioned. Okay, Carmella. Carmella's wearing a lot of red this episode, and this is where I really wished we had Naya. You guys have any thoughts on why? what's up with the red? She's cloaked in red this episode. I found red in so many places that I started to think about even a tie-in to American Beauty, which uh, aired a year before this episode. Uh, So you've got the Carmella's wearing red. Svetlana wears a lot of red. Uh, Irina, when Silvio goes and brings uh, money to Svetlana and Irina, uh, there's cranberry juice next to her and red nail polish on the nightstand it seemed forced when you started looking for it it seemed to be everywhere does it have anything to do like this is low-hanging fruit but is it because of the death is it because of blood well the the color itself is like passion and love and death and it's all of these rounded emotions okay so she smells arena like you mentioned on tony's clothes i really like the fade to hey hey i saved the world today the eurythmic song that song appears up at the end credits as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, great song choice. If you look at the lyrics, it's especially prescient. Let's move to the engagement party. Janice did get a ring on it. Last week, John, Naya, and I, we hadn't corroborated whether or not uh, Richie yeah, had I heard her that. a ring. I heard that. Um, great line. I think Adriana says it. I love the new wallpaper. You have that guy's number. And anytime anybody asks for a number, I always think of Goodwill Hunting forever and always. Do you like apples? Yeah. Well, I got a number. How do you like them apples? <laughs> Impressions on Richie's son, you I had. was wondering, who's the mother? Who is the mother? Hmm. Spinoff. Netflix. <laughs> oh, before he goes to the can? Why haven't we done that yet? I don't know. That's been so obvious. That's what just been waiting for us. Is he gay? Just because he's a dancer? No, I don't think so at all. I mean, Rahm Emanuel, the mayor of Chicago and the former chief of staff for the Obama administration, he studied dance. So he could easily take any one of these fools out, (laughs) okay? When Janice says, you knocked my socks off, my reaction was really? I felt like that was a little forced. And then Carm's reaction, she goes and she runs and she has that big tearful moment. My reaction was, is she really that naive? Remember when she called out a few episodes ago, she calls out Janice for saying her and Richie were different than Carm and Tony? And she's like, that's rich. And she like gets up and laughs and walks out. That's why I just felt like I I haven't been able to reconcile what it was about that scene that made Carmela break down. I don't think it has anything to do necessarily with Janice. I think that's her issue that's going on with Tony. Yeah. And she's just any, any slight trigger trigger. of love that she sees is probably going to send her in a tailspin. And you remember this from later on in a future episode, someone very close to her, professes their happiness with love and Carmela breaks down mm-hmm. again as well. Mm-hmm. It's just, she's, this is the first of many episodes of that happening. But she's so strong. And Naya mentioned this last week and we're gonna, we'll talk about the fishbowl. She's comfortable in her own fishbowl, but this was a very 180 flip on that theory. Svetlana, played by actress Ala Kliuka. The character only appeared in seven episodes, but she was so indelible to the memory of the show. She Great is legs not a too. she. Great legs. <laughs> she is actually not a thorn in Tony's side. Oh, great point. She is. Not I like a, that. She's someone that they do get along very well right from the very beginning. Great leg or great legs. <laughs> Either or. The main takeaway from her, and we'll see this throughout, is that she has one leg, but she lives like a boss from the moment we meet her. She's just confident. She's self-aware. She gives zero fucks. She gives zero fucks. Okay. She gives zero and fucks. 
you're just, you're drawn to this character. You're immediately drawn to her. And that is something that happens so often in the show that is so amazing to me. We see this person, we immediately get backstory because we know she's related to Tony's mistress. So that's all you kind of need to know to kind of wrap your head around her. But then you're immediately fixated on this person and you don't even know who she is or where she comes from. It's amazing. That actress was in Mad Men too. Mm Mm-hmm. The nice scene here, the smart directing and just sort of camera shade and Freud, if you will, is Tony's hugging it out with Arena, and then it cuts to Carm prepping Jan for, in her wedding dress. Just pure irony. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the contrast of what can happen in a person's life. So the Carm and Janice sequence uh, with the wedding dresses. The observation that I have is that Janice asks her if she's depressed, and she says, no, I leave that to others. This plays, John, into what Naya said about how Carm is the fish who's learned to live in the bowl. Mm-hmm. But just a scenes before that, she's crying because she's not comfortable in her bowl. You know, so I thought that was a nice contradiction. The Skip Skip's Boss sequence. Do you guys know this? You know Skip's Boss's name to the top of your head? It's like something very Italian, polysyllabic. You know, if he doesn't, forget mm-hmm. it. Okay. So the Skip Skip's Boss sequence... Worst case of Stockholm Syndrome I've seen since Patty Hearst. So Stockholm Syndrome, of course, is a condition where hostages ally with their captors as a means for survival. Did you study this? Is this something that you study in psychology? Very briefly. I think it's more of a pop culture okay. thing. But, I mean, it, it, it is brought up. And Patty Hearst, of course, is the granddaughter of William Randolph Hearst, the publishing tycoon. She was taken hostage by a group known as the Symbionese Liberation Army in 1974. There were recordings of her denouncing her family. She changed her name to Tanya, tried to find some sort of relation to the show there. There wasn't. um, And helped her captors rob banks in the San Francisco area. Her lawyer was F. Lee Bailey of Mm. OJ Trial fame. Yeah. And she was convicted and sent to jail, but President Bill Clinton pardoned her on grounds that she was coerced to behave the way that she did. Fascinating story. It's a crazy story. I think there's been a couple of TV movies, and I actually think there's a major Hollywood production coming out. There should be. Yeah. Um, The King of Dermabrasion reference. (laughs) They're talking about Larry Boy. I missed that. Dermabrasion. I don't know what it is. It's exfoliation. It's like an exfoliating technique. So so Larry Boy Barisi just got a facelift right before he went to jail. So he's doing some sort of... Can you imagine getting a facelift (laughs) before you go to jail? (laughs) That actually is the last thing you want to have a facelift for going into jail. You're pretty. Yeah. (laughs) Another observation, again, stylistic. I love it. I love it. I love it. Albert says no way to Tony Soprano. And then the scene cuts to the sound of what sounds like a Tommy gun, yeah. but is actually a paint yeah. shaker. On Amazon, it made reference that they're referencing uh, the usual suspects in that scene. And I didn't have enough time hmm. to go back and watch the usual. On Amazon? Yeah. If you hit pause and you raise up, it gives oh, you x-ray. some of the, the x-ray info. Oh, is that how you watch? Yeah. Amazon Prime. Okay. Melfi. The Distance. The scene starts with them far apart. And John, you've heard me rail about this over and over again. The whole season has been about how this slow crawl to mending their relationship. And we've talked in the past about how the camera choices reflected this. Now, almost in an instant, that bond seemingly has collapsed like a house of cards. And the camera makes no bones about it. An amazing line, Melfi pulls no punches. This is also a Mount Rushmore line for me too, of the show. Do you feel responsible for her suicide attempt? I was banging her for two years. Was that a hardship on her? That's cute. Melfi deadpan completely annihilates the whole scene by saying, was that a hardship on her? (laughs) So fucking good. She's not actually going for the double entendre, do you think? She's totally going. You think so? She's totally taking the gloves off and she's letting the, she's letting their relationship dance between professionalism and pseudo friendship she's breaking the rules that you know all too well about how to treat your patient and i don't and, know you well don't we know so? she's drinking too so so what, so what do you make of that do you think that's what that was strictly professional there's a couple of there's a couple of other times where she she says something that applies um to either tony, I, I forgot what the last one is but tony responds oh that's cute and then she starts giggling uncontrollably and says well that was unprofessional yeah so i i, I always give her the benefit of the doubt Maybe she's on the sauce, so maybe I should kind of back back up on on me thinking that she's gonna stick to the rules. But this, her that line in general was another instant for me where just like from a, like a 
behind the scenes standpoint, I would love to know how many takes it took to get through that zinger. You know, because was that a hardship on her is so layered. And I can't help but think that James Gandolfini just was like, let's try that again. Because, you know, it's just too funny. I liked the back and forth between them because for this whole time, she's not been very judgmental of his life. And for the first time, he's starting to realize, what am I doing with this chick? I should dump her. I should be a better person. And because he's not being reaffirmed by her, he's almost shocked like you should you shouldn't let me behave this way it was yeah interesting well, turn why aren't you holding me back yeah well what it kind of tells me is that tony just doesn't even pay attention to anything that melfi really says he selectively hears He's, well i think he just wants to get stuff off his chest he he views those sessions as kind of his sounding board just to release and because she's never judged him for his work at up until that point at least even when it's cost her tremendously and he's she's never judged a sex life like she mentioned so you think her bottling up all of the judgment that she wants to toss on him is what's causing her to drink like she's do you understand what i'm asking yeah yeah i'm sure that's a part of it i think i think it's that i i know from you know all the stuff that happened to her from season one on to season two where she had to basically go on the lamb i'm sure that that piled a lot on. That's a really stressful and traumatic event, especially when you you lose a client like that um, to suicide. That's got to put a ton ton of stress on her. So that would drive even the strongest person with the best psychologist ethics to the test. Mm-hmm. Would she be a victim of Stockholm Syndrome in a strange way mm-hmm. to Tony where she's living in this life now where she's accepting her captor and his antics and... Doesn't, th- doesn't want to, like, release him. Well, one of the symptoms is you feel sympathetic to your captor. Yeah. So she definitely feels sympathetic for him. But she's, I th- she's admitted that. I, th- I think she always has her own personal viewpoint of him, and she doesn't really let that go. She always thinks that he's a pretty uh, morally reprehensible person. But is she, she doesn't a- bring that into the sessions. Is she a prisoner? Like, does she have control of this relationship? <sighs> That's a good question because I think that if she really wanted to cut him loose, she probably could. Is she a prisoner of her fear of him or a prisoner of her own professional ethics? I think she's a prisoner of the human desire to watch train wrecks. To watch train wrecks without or the to consequences. Want to help? Oh wow. Okay. You know? She's admitted that. Yeah. yeah. And and the justification for watching the train wreck without the consequences is trying to help. So she's trying to, she knows he's on a collision course and she's offering help, but she knows that the help is not going to, is futile because it's ultimately going to end where it ends. And so she's justifying it through her therapy. But again, this is all conjecture. So Richie confronts Junior that their plan has no legs. Okay. Pun intended. (laughs) Richie calls Larry. I'm fucking Larry Barisi too. I got friends in federal holding that would like nothing better than to take that weak fuck out. Again, I just love Richie. I just love him, okay? Bobby says, Fucking guy's fearless for his size. That's nice. The constant references to Richie's courage this episode. Any thoughts on what's going on there? I have a thought, but I'm curious if you guys do. Why are they hyping up Richie so much this episode before we hear what Junior says? Well, obviously, we know what Junior's going to do. It's same observations that we have every time he opens his mouth he's the moxie on this guy the moxie okay so junior thinks though on the other hand so bobby's in awe i'm in awe of you bobby's in awe of junior so and bobby's in awe of richie junior thinks he's a sorry fuck okay um and you actually told me this line about when we were talking about off mic and text messages about the the luca of the nba and you said richie would be who did you say? Because uh, he couldn't sell it. Or Chris Paul. Chris Paul. Chris Paul's Chris a Luca, Paul. which I thought was a nice analogy. This is probably the most underrated scene in the entire series. There are some lines in this exchange that are just killer. First is when Jackie Appeals is saying, I do it myself, talking yeah. about killing uh, Larry Barisi. <laughs> right. talking and he here? says, yeah. who's that speaking? Is somebody speaking? Yeah. That's just beautiful Junior Soprano. Totally. Then, then when they're talking about how, um, I think they're just talking about Richie, he says, so what? He dies, I can't even wear his shoes. 
Yeah. Beautiful line. And then followed by Bobby saying, I'm in awe of you. Yeah. Just yeah. just that, that whole... Very, it is a very underrated sequence. It's so And good. also, it's visually stunning, too. It looks like he's in Havana, Cuba, almost. It almost looks like a Godfather it 2 does. reference. It does, like uh, Hyman me? Roth. Hyman, Hyman Roth. Roth. Yeah. There you go. His dining room has never looked so gorgeous. With his uh, reference to selling it, do you think at that moment, if Richie had given a better pitch or had more conviction and a plan, that Junior would have gone with Richie at that moment? Yeah, it would have been yeah. his number two. Yeah. That was Richie's audition to be underboss, and he failed, right? So he says he's not respected. He decides he's better off with Tony. And like you just mentioned, Bobby's watching this whole thing, and he's just like, an, I mean, he's in awe. And I was in awe of his shirt, personally. <laughs> his shirt was off the hook, his okay? His shirts are nuts. Off the hook. <laughs> I think it was uh, Soprano's autopsy that referenced right after, essentially, Junior's ready to frame Richie. That scene removes Richie behind him, and there's the outlook from the kitchen into the living room. He's diminished. And, and he's diminished, and he's framed in that scene mm-hmm. as he leaves. There's another scene later on at the very end where Tony, after Tony, uh, Carmela tells Tony that she's leaving to go away on vacation, you see Tony's head with a column and a wall, and it looks like he's almost getting squished. Mm-hmm. Um, so I thought about this after the fact, actually, right before you guys got here, this sequence with Junior and uh, Richie. The show sets it up so nicely to this point and cleverly with Richie's power play actions, right? And Bobby's two references to his power relative to his size. But then in an instant, Junior comes in like the big bad wolf and just eight sixes the whole thing by saying, He couldn't fucking sell it. He's not respected. And I kind of feel bad for Richie. It's a beautiful underrated scene because of what you just described, all the dialogue and sort of like it accomplishes so much in such a quick sprint of time. But I feel like it didn't give Richie his due. As a lover of Richie, as Team Richie over here, I feel like, man, if they were somehow, if there was a script out there somewhere where he and Junior actually had a little bit of a Manson lamp moment, like that would have given me a little satisfaction. But I totally, I'm like... That if Richie got up in Junior's grill? Yeah, if there was like a little bit more Richie. Because this is, this is it. Like, but he's old school. He's got to be good. He's old school. God bless him. He got to be loyal to his couple. Um, Pussy goes to see Chris... He was totally fishing, right? Did you see him jiggle his tie? I took a screenshot of that. Yeah, it looked like he was uh, assembling his, his mic. Mm. Why did he have to tell? So if he was Mike, this is a nitpick, why did he have to go and tell Skip? Well, he he felt like he was a part of the FBI team. Okay. And he wanted to contribute in a more meaningful way by going on a quote-unquote stakeout where yeah. he's just following him around, showing that, hey, I can do this job. You guys, you guys can really use me. I can go track these guys down just yeah. like you do. So the scene alludes later on um, when Pussy's on a stakeout and he's trailing Christopher to be part of this new crew, right, the legit crew. When he's driving the car, there's always been this illusion that we've talked about in the past about a collision course. He's on a collision course with Tony. And I thought this was interesting that in the penultimate episode to the finale, which we obviously know we're going to talk about the finale next week, but there's a literal collision course here and Pussy actually hits somebody and creates all this (laughs) havoc, but it's you get a double whammy. You get this and then you get next episode. So I just thought it was interesting that it it's just a great setup, you know, for what's about to happen. Like the literal collision course before the actual collision course, you know. Next sequence is Tony visits Arena and Svetlana. I only have a note here about there being a great line where Svetlana says psychiatrist means it's a big deal yeah, in Russia. Yeah. It means gulag, political rehabilitation. And Tony's reaction of like Give me the fuck out of here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Very comic. Yeah. Very comic it was, a little, it was a little too serious for him. Yeah. Well, one one thing I found funny about that is the way that they kind of juxtapose all these views on psychology. Like, in the Italian side of it, the mafia side of it, they're against it. It's a sign of weakness. Tony was almost killed over it. And the academic psychology aspect of it where Melfi is hanging out with colleagues or discussing things with Elliot they're very open about it they have dinner conversations they openly debate theories and ideas and then you you take it to to the Russians um, and there's political fear and yeah. the gulag is brought into this 
it's it's just kind of funny how psychology is viewed in so many different ways in the show. Super polarizing. Yeah. I don't know of a group of people that are like pro, like there's a lot of doctrines or religions or like belief systems where psychology is frowned upon. I'm not sure if there's one where it's, there's like an advocate of other than like, just like just general, like educated society, you know, you know what I'm talking yeah, about? I don't know. Like there's a lot of know. people that have opinions about why it's bad, but there's no, like, there's no like, I think in body. Judaism, it is a little bit. It is accepted? Yeah. Well, in Catholicism, you're speaking to your priest yeah. about all of your troubles. You're just confessing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's a therapeutic aspect to that, I guess. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So Pussy's Accident, which we just kind of mentioned a minute ago. There's one thing I wanted to mention to you guys. There's a Fat Man reference. He says Fat Man, and I didn't know this until I interviewed Joe Penny, who was Vic Musto on the show. And the Fat Man reference was a nod to the show, Jake and the Fat Man, which Joe Penny was played the lead role. Hmm. That was actual, they actually nodded his show. That was show. a wink wink to Vic? And he was in this episode. Hmm. Yeah. Tony Carmarina round one. Carm's mic drop. You are putting me in a position where I'm feeling sorry for a whore who fucks you? Tony. I broke it off with her and she tried to kill herself because she said she didn't want to go on without me, the poor kid. My observation there is that he likens his mistress to a child, to his own wife, in their house. When you deconstruct it like that, it makes Carmelo's response so brilliant. And Tony's delivery, like, he's, so, he's actually so serious yeah, about it. Yeah. He's like, the poor kid. That's <laughs> a weird one. It's powerful. Like, fuck, he really thinks he can manipulate himself out of it like he like carmelo will be like oh yeah you're right let's go send her some cookies or something (laughs) junior tells tony about richie which i was surprised by i've seen the show a million times but i always forget how quickly junior tries to align himself it's just like a matter of fact like there's a hit on you it kind of the show starts to pick up this speed that we haven't seen for several episodes right this pace that this soprano pace whenever there's someone's about to get whacked or someone does get whacked there's this movement there's this activity and it's like it's like a it's like a freight train like we always talk about i feel like he's so much wiser as the series goes on. In in the first one, he's kind of just a... Junior? S- junior. He's a squirrely old man. He kind of doesn't know what's what's going on. Most of the... the easily manipulated. Yeah, yeah, easily manipulated by Livia. And all of the, the captains don't respect him. They they put Tony up as the, the real leader. Well, he's stronger ever since he's ditched Livia, too. Yeah. You know, Livia was a big downer. We'll get to Livia. The line that he says, though, he mentions it to to Richie an episode ago. You need to watch out for that niece Mm -hmm. of mine. He even tells Tony here, you got to wonder where she is in all of this, my little niece. Junior wants Janice gone, too. Janice is arguably a bigger problem than Livia because she's got more runway Mm. on life. Yeah, Junior's playing chess and everyone else is playing checkers in this episode. Tony tells Silvio, which takes all of like three, four, five seconds for Silvio to be like, fuck it, he's not worth, like no good can come from him being around, right? I like that he came to the audience. Yes. Almost (laughs) as like a validation, like, what do you guys think? I like that. Yeah, let's kill him. Well, that again, another reason why Silvio is one of my favorite characters, just how matter-of-factly he condones Richie's murder in such a pragmatic way. The Just that line. I genuinely don't think there's anything to gain by keeping him around. Get it done. And the way that he responds once he finds out that his chief, someone wants his chief popped. He's yeah. so loyal. Yeah. He's like that motherfucker. He's al- he is always loyal. Never always. never wavers. Observation in that scene, there's uh, the memory remains is the lyric from Metallica once Tony sanctions the hit on Richie. And there's a lot of Metallica at the Bing this season. Musical observation. So Janice and Richie, the final dance which I liken to Richie Fox trotting his way to an unceremonious death to quote his mention of the dance style. Fucking disgusting. My nephew Jackie. I couldn't have a son like that. I love that line. And the hands. I want to uncork a bottle like Richie forever now. He's not even looking at the damn thing. It's a no-look bottle cork. Okay? So this is their final moment. Like Aida Turturro and David Proval know... As far as Aida Turturro is concerned, right, her character is done as well. There's no, they don't know what's going to happen to Nancy Marchand next season. And this whole storyline of like, this could potentially be the end. And I remember seeing season two for the first time. And it's like, oh, Janice is gone and Richie's gone. This is their last dance, right? Mm -hmm. Which is kind of an emotional thing. So I was really paying attention to all the little things they were doing to like get their last, to squeeze all the orange juice. It says with pulp. 
You like it with pulp. Not this much. I like the one that says some pulp. So he punches Janice right after she says, so what if your son is gay? I'm really getting at this 10 years in the can thing. Was that pent up rage from 10 years in the can and maybe being a victim of a lot of sexual assault? I don't think so. I think that guys like Richie that are made men that are that are in prison, they they have protection, some protection of some sort. Okay. Put my dinner on the table. I just the way he says it, like the way just the way he like he like shoulders into his dialogue. Fuck. Well, I love the way that Sopranos Autopsy puts it. Just pure assholery. Yeah, yeah. He's so good. You can say a lot about Richie. You can say a lot. Moxie. He's tough. He's a fighter. But he's also just a straight up asshole that we all deal with in our everyday lives, and we can all relate to someone like him who just pisses you off just to piss you off. Oh, you have to ride. Yeah, you know? it's like when you and I were working together. <laughs> yeah, John was the Richie. John, I was going to say, who <laughs> oh was the Richie? God. So there are several mentions of this episode about his moxie despite his size. It turns out that in real life, David Proval was a boxer. So the punches, remember the very first scene that we see with him with Beansy, the way he winds up for the punch and then his actual punch with Janice, the guy knows what he's doing and the guy knows how to throw a fake punch. Good form. Yeah, great form. Also a thing of note, Alan Coulter put the New Jersey Bride magazine on David Proval's seat as an impromptu thing to create a greater sense of annoyance for the character. And apparently that's what directors do to try to get the actor into the mode is they set up these side things that just sort of like make them kind of live in the moment even more. And it shows when he pulls up, you see New Jersey bride and he kind of discards it almost like he's discarding his bride. Mm. Very apt. And also the other thing, which is obvious, just to, but just to put a bow on it, Richie says you can't hit your woman until you put a ring on it. And he didn't lay a hand on her until she had a ring on it. So he was consistent at least. You talk about the reference to Chris Moltisanti. Reference to Chris Moltisanti. Yeah. So that comes around. So you think New Jersey Bride magazine being on the seat and the way that he picked it up and showed it to Janice, that was just like insult to injury to her? He wasn't showing it to her. He picked it up because it was in his way. But the way that he looked, he just gave this very subtle, great look that I think was really powerful. And it was just like... Fucking disgrace. You're the bride. Act like it. Yeah. Yeah. Put my dinner on the fucking table. Note. Earlier, Jan said... So the gun... This is like a this is like a whole thing, right? She goes away, and this is a, you never really get to fully appreciate the scene. She turns around, and then all of a sudden, there's a gun, and he doesn't even get a moment to say anything. Mm. Boom, done. It's very quick. It's very abrupt. It's very matter of fact, which in hindsight is a beautiful thing. But there's a mention when she's talking about the gun to Carm. Yes. At the, she says the gun is usually. We usually we take the clip. So out. that was bullshit. This time the, there was a clip in the gun. She didn't have time to put a clip in the gun because it happened so fast. But the word usually was very prescient to me. Observation also. We see Livia's kitchen and then we see the Soprano kitchen and then we go back to the Livia kitchen again. And I just wanted to point out the choice to show the contrast. Yeah. The new era, old era, um, wealth, not so wealthy. Yeah. And then also I wanted to comment on the fact that this is the one scene. Yes. Where Tony and Janice get along. Yeah. No. This. This. This was. A, this episode was just packed full of so many scenes that were really powerful and moved the story along. And we constantly see Tony and Janice bitching about their mother. Yep. But in two totally different ways, and never at the same time. Janice had her issues resolved, quote unquote, with her mom when she left. Tony was the one that was dealing it all the time, and he resolved by excommunicating her. Yeah. So there was never really a chance for them to commiserate over her no. at the same time. And this was the first time, and, and anybody who who has a sibling kind of gets this. There's always time, whether your mom or dad is the greatest in the world, there's going to be times where the siblings join together and just share. They're, they're the only people who can truly connect and bitch about their parents. Right. And this is the first time that they have this shared understanding and both kind of go after Olivia. Janice doesn't verbally do it. She does it in a more, I think, sympathetic way where she's looking for some sort of empathy from her mother that just isn't there. She just insults 
insults Janice and Tony sticks up for her. I thought that that was really powerful. And again, going back to what I was saying earlier, where all of these really powerful moments between the Sopranos always ha- add an element of humor. Yeah. It's, it's the Tony falling. Yeah. I love how the change from Livia in season one to she's totally disarmed now. Uh, even in the previous episode when Junior mentions that what you don't know could fill a book. Yeah. And the way that Tony combats her where before he did not handle her. Yeah. And it's the defense that they put on her is just not letting her get to them. And it's it's great. Um, so Christopher and Furio come. Two quick observations. Christopher looks directly at the camera for a split second. You can actually see the lens in his eye. It's a very specific moment. I have it framed. I'm going to put it up on the gram. You guys can see it. And it actually, it wasn't an error, but when he was surveying the room, he actually locks onto the camera. And it's the one time when Michael Imperioli is actually looking at us while we're watching the show. Do you think they saw that and like, okay, keep it? Isn't that, it's a big snafu in that world. Yeah, you don't do it, right? Or porn specifically. I, I don't know. I feel like it's, I feel like it was such an, it could have been an oversight. It, but it also could have been, like, it was just a snap. It was like a split second. It was literally less than a second. So, um, but it, it does happen. great that uh, Furio seemed more <laughs> upset at the loss of Richie's Cadillac. Yeah, that was than great. Yeah, that was a great. work they had to do. Um, Carmela checks in on Tony. In a weird way, she calls the house, right? And he answers, and then she hangs up, and she kind of feels, like, satisfied. In a weird way, does this buy Tony out of the doghouse a little? Does that make any sense? No, it makes it makes sense. I think that it's more of a stay of execution type thing. Where, okay, where if if he wasn't there, or if there was some funny business where she couldn't verify that 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 was in fact the truth that he was telling, I think he would have had some hell to pay because she was she's she was ready to go. If he doesn't answer the phone, does the Vic Musto thing actually happen? I think the Vic Musto thing doesn't happen because of Vic Musto. Yeah, but that's a good point. I think that she she have some repercussions on that scene because you're always big on what carmela's wearing she's wearing a leopard print or an animal print yeah and i thought that was very because she found vic and followed him there she was getting her prey she was like this cougar going after vic boom yeah nice i like that hashtag soprano style observation constant motion after the shooting this is something that i've watched at least three times since right since we were preparing for this episode in every sequence after the shooting there's just a pace that we haven't seen yet janice wavering uh livia coming down like darth vader uh, shout out (laughs) autopsy tony entering it's classic sopranos when things happen the crew professionalizes and problem solves like a well choreographed ballet or a Tim Duncan era Spurs offensive <laughs> clinic. Take your pick on the analogy. Cue the mic drop. The Tony speech to Livia, which you guys have started to allude to, that I have a couple of ideas on here. So again, Livia comes down the stairs, like autopsies aptly analogized Darth Vader. The first words to her son after a long time are uttered, and they are, what are you doing here? Which again is like, really? You know, as opposed to, Son? Sonny boy, something, something a little bit more along the lines of like, I love you. I haven't seen you in a long time. No, we don't get that. Livia then mocks Janice. And the thing that I found really cool about this scene is that Tony defends her. What kind of a fucking chance did she have with you as her mother? You're always nagging her about her weight. She goes out on a date. She comes home. You call her a fucking tramp. I'm on the way out in the car. Livia also has this line where she says babies are like animals. They're no different than dogs, which was really dark and really morbid but tony's face is the thing that i want to like submit to you guys well well go ahead just before we get into that i do think that there there was the only time in this scene that livia expresses some vulnerability she says oh i bet you now you're not going to kiss your mother and she says something else and i think tony's face at that time was was kind of feeding into it he was he was connecting with her for a second until she says the broken record line of hers i gave my life to my children on a silver platter as soon as she says that that's a trigger to him to know that this is all bullshit this is all coming from the same kind of maniacal diabolical scheming mind that livia has to to manipulate him and cause some sort of like internal strife that he has and he's like, you know what? I'm not dealing with this. And then he runs out and falls. Yep. And the way that he's shot from behind, 
he looks like a little kid on the ground, especially like dropping his gun, which looks like a little kid dropping their toy truck. Mm-hmm. True. That's exactly how it's shot. And then he gets up and, and scurries off like a kind of cartoonish. An uncomfortable like teenage boy. Yeah. Yeah. He, he amazingly can revert to that. It reminds me of, uh, I forgot what his name is in the, the movie Friday, the ice cube movie when, uh, that Chris guy, Tucker character? The guy gets his chain snatched off by Debo, oh, yeah. and then he starts, like, running away with his arms flailing. Yeah. That's that's kind of what it reminds me of. So Tony's face, and I freeze-framed this, when Livia gets up from her chair, like you just mentioned, the way he morphed into a little boy and completely conveyed what every child feels when there's age-old conflict bubbling up with their mother was stunning. His face is so sad, yeah. you know? He's like, he actually, like you said, you said it beautifully. He wants, he wants to connect with her, even in this, like, really bad, hopeless state. And I just found it so powerful. And then again, you've mentioned the fall many times. It's super subtle. But do you remember the discussion about how the only time my mother ever laughed, he tells Melfi, it was when my mm. father falled and we all laughed. We all had a good laugh. It was even a step further. This was the only time that he had a good memory with his entire with family, his including his mother. And yeah. then Melfi felt really bad about that. He felt really bad. But here, too, she's crying in the room when he storms out and then he falls and she starts laughing at him. It's the same thing. She laughed yes. at her fallen husband and fallen son. And these are the only two times, in my opinion, where she's ever laughed. Yes. And it was a nice, it was a very subtle symmetry, very clever too. Like you won't catch it because she's arguably still crying. But then she kind of closes the door. She's like self-satisfied. Like he's fallen. He's nobody without me. Right. She has this like delusion of grandeur to the very bitter end. Like all mothers who want to manipulate their sons mm. and daughters have. No matter how far you go in life, no matter what you achieve, I'm still your mother, you know? Yeah. Crazy stuff. Okay, bus station. She's going back to Seattle. Janice is going back to Seattle. There's a bridge in the background. You see this Art Deco facade, which is like an, represents to me this artifice. And then right behind it, there's the reality of what's behind a worn down jagged piece of metal. I thought that was very deliberate, very intentional, and very cool. Um, reactions. Are you happy she's gone? Are you sad she's gone? Uh, did what do you guys? What did you guys think of that sequence? It was bittersweet, uh, and it, it gave us a moment to see that she was really uh, in love with Richie. It seemed like she genuinely cared about him. Um, the final sequence was really beautiful. I love these final sequences, the way, especially when they make music. Like the, there's, there's Tony, there's. Carmela, and then there's the music, the third character in the room, right? Carm's going to Rome, or she might kill herself. The way her face drops, so good. the way she goes like volume 10 to volume zero is like, again, bow down acting. And the people, the actors that have come on and talked about it, these are all classically trained actors in theater. And again, something that I've learned in this process. And that's where the theater comes in, where she can just go from here to here. And you're just like butter in her hands, mm. you know? And then the song again, the Annie Lennox Eurythmics song is such a great way to encapsulate the fact that Tony has saved the world, but everybody's still fucking miserable. Um, okay. Most rewatchable scene. The final dance with Richie and Janice. Yeah. All the Janice and Richie moments, even the scene leading up to it where she tells him that Tony doesn't want you hanging out with his son when he like winds up a pitch to throw the beer bottle at the fireplace. They say Richie couldn't be a closer. (laughs) As far as I'm concerned, man, that wind up is pretty legit. I mean, this episode was so good. There's, there's two strong honorable mentions. It's that, uh, the umbrella scene out in the rain with Barone and Tony and Richie. And then there's the, the Albert and Richie scene. Yeah. Like these are some honorable mentions that are heavy hitters, probably number ones in a lot of other episodes. Do you have a favorite scene, John? No. My favorite scene is actually the opening. I really love the intro for some reason. It just sets up the mood. You know, you know what it reminds me of? Do you remember when uh, T.O. used to play in the NFL Mm -hmm. and he said something, he was like doing like, he was doing sit-ups in his like front port or front lawn or something. And he said that line, get your popcorn ready. Mm -hmm. This is a very much a get your popcorn ready scene. Yes. Another one for you, Vic. This is like the Golden State Warriors. They have all of these great all-stars and then you add in an Albert, DeMarcus Cousins, who comes in and just kills it with his with his uh repetitions with his repertoire yeah <laughs> jimmy two times yes any nitpicks there's some continuity issues with uh richie's death the uh the bullet is on his left chest and then when you see him on the ground it's it's more towards the center oh um and then there's a 
I love the forensic analysis. The <laughs> <laughs> blood splatter John wasn't Dexter. correct. Dude, Dexter. the expert witness over yeah. here. I I thought this entire episode could have done without the skip and pussy scenes. We say that all, very all frequently. You guys, man, yeah. All you guys yeah. are like over the skip and pussy no, thing. No, I'm not skip. over. I like the, the arc and the relationship that they have. Do you think it took too long? I think that these were rushed. Yeah. I think that these were rushed. It's it's like, okay, this whole Pokemon thing, that doesn't really lead anywhere, even mean anything to me. It's kind of a silly just throwaway. They're trying to... Cultural reference. Yeah, they're just trying to keep pussy in this uh, in this season and lead up to you the know, finale. The finale. But nothing really goes about. I think the only part that was interesting was talking about Stockholm Syndrome. Yeah. And, um, and you, to, to, getting schooled by the FBI boss. To your point, the I think John had mentioned this sooner. Like, one of the things about Skip that they, he didn't like is that he's not interacting with any of his FBI people. But you get that in this episode where he's talking yeah, yeah, to his I boss and they're that. in the office and they're talking about eating all the snacks from Tony Soprano every year. That was a nice little backstory about how Tony sends uh, birthday wishes to the yeah, heads yeah. of the yeah, like FBI Even Chiefs. Columbus Day. Even Columbus yeah. Day. No, I, I, I really do like just the character of Skip. Yeah, he's great. I, th- I think he's great. He's a very human character. Yeah. He's also a great spin-off series. And you don't yeah. want to see his dark. Yeah, I want to see his dark side. Um, I do. My biggest nitpick was the two gunshots in the house didn't trigger a call to the police. Mm. Also, Livia didn't hear that. Well, she was, she was on... She was on uh, uh, Still, yeah. I've taken a couple of sleeping pills and I still wake up if there's like yeah, a Yeah, but boom. you're not like 85 years old. That's true. <laughs> Could a Netflix series be spun off on the basis of this episode? And what would it look like? So I'll get mine out of the way because you're just, I'm gonna you're you're gonna get the floor to finish finish everybody That's off a lot here. Of pressure. Um, mine is Carm and Rome, but Rome is spelled R O and then M E is in parentheses. So it's Carm and Roe. That was I like all it. that was all title for me. What do you got? I got Janice's road trip back to Seattle, the miniseries. Her, okay. Her stops along the way and her adventures. Yeah, like a four-part series, yep. four parts of the country. Mm-hmm. What do you got? Which, what's your Netflix? I got a couple tree. Couple of tree. Couple, t- tree, couple of tree things. I have uh, Moving Pavardi, which is a, a reality show when Janice was uh, a mover. <laughs> and, and her and the interactions of the different people she helps move. That's a good one. I That's have a nice subtle one. I like that. The Root of Glaucoma. Join Christopher <laughs> Moltisanti as he treks the Amazon, finding that special route that will cure glaucoma. Dude, uh, I, I'm thinking of like Blood Diamond right now. <laughs> but it's, it's total fucking bullshit. But it's bullshit. <laughs> yeah. And then uh, I went dark on this one. Uh, the, the Taste of Richie. So it's a horror series that follows after Richie's put through the grinder at Satrials. And all these people eat the sandwich that has a taste of Richie in it. And they're haunted by the ghost of Richie. Anyone that eats these these sandwich, these Richie sandwiches, I, I sound crazy. That huh? is a mic drop. No, that is that amazing. Is Just came up with the Richie story too on the heels of what you said. It's called Uncorked with Richie April. <laughs> and it's basically Richie, Richie's musings on life while uncorking a wine bottle. No look. Okay. Love it. He's just talking to the camera, you know, and he's just telling like 15 little, like 12 minute episodes of just Richie pontificating on life. He would be a great late night host, wouldn't oh, he? Man. He would be <laughs> just deadpan. You know, Richie post soprano shit. Like there, if I was his manager, I would have lined up so much shit for him because he, he was a boss. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to say, I'm going to say a little toast to him in a moment here. Okay. Last call. What do we got for last call? Uh, I read that, uh, James Gandolfini, uh, pleaded with David Chase to keep the character of Richie April alive because he enjoyed working with David Proval so much. Um, but Chase decided against it. That was a cool backstory for two characters that were at each other's throats the entire length of the season. And that were toe-to-toe acting-wise, man. But just loved each other's company in general. And I've also got... I noticed that all of Tony's women lash out in this, uh, specifically... Carmela, Irina, and Janice. So one with a gun, one with pills, and the other one with a trip to Rome uh, is a, a means to hurt him in some way. So I got a couple of things. Silvio mentions a book to Irina when he gifts her 75000 to move on. 
It's called Passages, and I've actually read it. It's, uh, it was written by Gail Sheehy, and I was looking up my bookmarks of it before we, in preparation for this. But basically, the essence of the book, I highly recommend it to people that are especially that are in their 30s. Um, the essence of the book is to turn life crises into opportunities for creative change. And it was written a while ago. It came out in like the... I don't know when it came out. It came out a while ago, but it's been a New York Times bestseller uh, for the longest time. So it's like a really, really, really good book. Self-help. And then finally, David Proval. David Proval wins sixth man of the year for his bench performance contribution in season two. His portrayal of Richie and the Richie character is such a big part of the ethos of the show going forward. Right. And we talked about this, I think, when we first sat down about how what seeds are put in place in the early seasons is like a formula that the show uses in season three. They're going to be the same formula in season four, same formula in Mm. season five. And it all starts with Richie. Subsequent characters, story structure, overall style and flow. The amount of backstory that we're able to create around this universe of characters, thanks to Richie, is also invaluable different personality quirks come out on all the people in the crew thanks to Richie that otherwise we wouldn't really have any context for, right? Tony especially. If season one was an exercise in becoming infatuated with these characters, season two, in large part thanks to Richie, confirmed our love and infinite curiosity and commitment to these characters. Because once he's gone, you're like, wow, like, there's a void, but somehow it's okay. It's like this weird thing. Well, as, as powerfully as he was this season, he's now gone, but the show has still got so much juice. Golden State Warriors, right? They got so much juice in the lineup that it doesn't even matter. That's how amazing this season is to me. Yeah. And I've never felt this way about this season until Pada Bing. I've always been like, fuck Richie, man. Richie's in the way. Richie's a thorn in my side. I want Richie gone. But now when you think about it in a collective body of work, it's so, it's like, I'm going to do another basketball analogy on the spot here. Michael Jordan, six championships, right? But every season, he got a new Richie. You got Dennis Rodman. You got Tony Kukoc. You have these little pieces that got you to the next level year after year. And Richie was like a Dennis Rodman yeah. figure. Yeah, That's so funny because I was going to make that reference. Really? The Dennis Rodman because I was trying to think of that character is so important. And like you said, uh, I was the same way. I wasn't a big Richie fan. Uh, Ralph is still my favorite. But I, I was the same way with Livia. I didn't really like her as a character. And when we finished season one, I was like, wow, powerful. Yeah. But you know how the, everyone says, uh, without Tony Soprano, you wouldn't have a Walter White or any succeeding yeah. anti hero. You could kind of say this without Richie, there would be no Ralph, no Phil Leotardo. Oh, no absolutely. Feech. Absolutely. Like, no Feech. Absolutely. The, yeah. Without Dennis Rodman, MJ might not get his next ring. I mean, it, it might not have happened. It, it, it arguably could have. Tony could have held it on his own. But you, these characters, they deserve to be adorned because they they carry the show from one season to the next. And Richie, he wasn't even in the whole season. Like, so we have one more episode, and he doesn't come into season two until episode three. So he got short shrift, but in only this little tiny body of work, he's one of the most indelible characters. And someone has asked David Chase already was Ralphie your way of saying, I'm sorry, I fucked up on Richie? Yeah. And he has said, I'm not really sure. I don't really know. I don't really necessarily buy that. Yeah. Like making up for it, filling the void with someone similar. Making up for it. Like like if Richie had stayed in the story, would he have taken on the storylines that Ralphie was known for? And I would go, I will go on record right now, just based on what we know, listeners that haven't seen the show before. And again, yes, there still are a lot of people. You guys can spoil. It's okay. You know, there are actually young people that are watching the show for the first time. And so I'm staying true to this notion of we're not going to spoil it for those people. But based on what we know now, Richie would be a better Ralphie just based on what I've seen. It would have been amazing to have him go for another season or two is what I'm trying to get at. Mm, um, yeah. I'm invested. Would those two have been friends? No. Oh, no. Hell no. And by the way, <laughs> I've been asked this question, too. Like, one-on-one, mono mono Richie would fuck up Ralphie. Yeah, absolutely. There's no question about it. It's not even a match. It's it's brains versus brawn. I don't think that Ralphie... Here we go. I think, yeah. I think Richie set up the prototype for a guy like Ralph to exist, but I don't think that they are cut from the same cloth in the in terms of their personality structure in terms of them being a foil for tony while also being part of his his crew and subordinates of his i think that that's that's where the similarities are but i look at richie 
And I think he's more akin to a Feech. He's more akin to a Filiotardo. Old school mentalities. Like, Ralph doesn't really have respect for anybody. No. No. Yeah, Ralph's very much in it for himself. Exactly. But we'll get there. Uh, thank you both for being here on uh, Christmas Eve. And uh, we'll see you next time. <laughs>